This is Sparks and Wiry Cries, taking a modern look at classical song with Martha Guth and Erica Switzer. Welcome to Sparks and Wiry Cries. I am your host, Martha Guth. Donald Hall has written over 50 books, including more than two dozen books of poetry, children's books, art criticism, essays, plays, and other edited volumes. His Essays After 80 was published in 2014, and he is currently writing a volume of essays to be published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt in 2018. His many honors include two Guggenheim Fellowships and the LA Times Book Prize for Poetry. He served as U.S. Poet Laureate from 2006 to 2007, and in 2010, he was awarded the National Medal for the Arts by President Obama. This is an interview that I recorded last summer, 2016, in his living room of his farmhouse in New Hampshire, surrounded by his books, his artwork, gifts, and awards. We spoke about Robert Frost, the death of his wife, the musicality of his poetry, and as a personal request about his children's books that I have admired for so long. I came to interview him the morning after a workshop performance in his honor of eight of a final ten songs performed by tenor Michael Slattery and pianist Dimitri Dover, composed by Herschel Garfine, set to his texts. So often during this forthcoming interview, when we mention the night before, that is, of course, the reference. Those songs that were workshopped will be premiered through Sparks and Wiry Cries on our Casement Fund song series this coming March 30th, 2017 in New York City, and that will be in the James Room at Barnard Hall. It is, uh, will have free admission, but a reservation will be required through the heymancenter.org slash events. This recital is in partnership with the Heyman Center for the Humanities, Eileen Gillooly, the Executive Director, and the Program in Narrative Medicine at Columbia Medical Center. Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist Richard Ford, National Book Award-winning poet Jean Valentine, and Professor of Clinical Medicine and Director of the Program in Narrative Medicine, Dr. Rita Sharon, will join the artists in a program of readings and reflections, paying tribute to poet Donald Hall's storied career and his guiding themes of love, sexuality, and bereavement in old age. Mr. Hall himself will participate via remote video link from his home in New Hampshire. So this is really an event that I, I don't think you're going to want to miss. And more information can definitely be found on our website, sparksandwirycries.org. So, on to the interview. We started right away with an opening question that a poet friend of mine, Robert Cole, had wondered about, since he had been the recipient of a few precious letters from Don. Donald Hall has a great history of responding to almost every letter that he has received over his lifetime, so I asked him about this. You are a great letter writer. I know of a few people who were wonderfully surprised by your letters. Um, why do you find that important to you, and does letter writing keep you engaged in the art? I really grew up with it, totally. Uh, I, uh, I answer pretty much every letter I get, and uh, oh, when Jane died, I had... Uh, uh, well over a thousand, and I did eventually answer them all. When I was poet laureate, I had more than a thousand, and uh, there I 
I got my assistant to read them over before I read them, and if they just said congratulations, I didn't answer. Well, I had to sort of force myself not to. Uh, my family has always been letter writers. From this house, my uh, grandmother, uh, Kate, who had uh, three daughters, wrote them every day. They moved away, and uh, the three daughters wrote her every day. So uh, when I was here in the summer as a kid, I used to walk down to the post office, and uh, I knew there would be mail every day. <laughs> there was. I have saved my uh, letters uh, most of the time. That, that is letters to me and copies of the letters out. And they're in an archive at the University of New Hampshire. And there are, uh, I believe I'm right to saying that there are 150,000 uh, sheets of paper. Uh, I uh, do it every day. Usually I, I do work on my poetry or prose first, uh, and then I'm chatting, I dictate my letters. It's totally different. My handwriting's impossible, my typing was never good. I started it fairly early, and uh, I relax into connection with other people. And one thing that I know is curious is that uh, I was an only child, and I tend to love my solitude. And uh, here's a man who uh, uh, maybe discourages visitors a bit, but who writes 12, 15 letters a day by talking. Last night, something that you said stuck in my mind. Um, you said, poetry is not a statement, but a made object. Yeah, absolutely. Can you expand on that a little? Well, sometimes people think that... Uh, they have thoughts that are worth writing down, and uh, so uh, the endeavor is to uh, uh, get the thought whole and honest, and they, you rate the words by their uh, uh, trueness to your intention. Um, and uh, I, one thing I've said a million times is that uh, when I read a poem the first time, I might be sitting in this chair reading a New Yorker, and Jane might be over there, and uh, I might say to her, oh, Galway has a good poem in the New Yorker. And suppose Jane, Jane would never say this, but suppose she'd say, what's it about? I'd say, oh, I don't know, I'll look. I would have total and complete response, an adequate response to the poem as a poem. It would be beside me, living with me, feeling, and I wouldn't know what it was about. But the words, the feeling of the words, about, the structure. The word, yeah. 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 It's, it's a creation of this object. It's, uh, you know, like a sculpture or, uh, you know, a beautiful painting. Uh, it's something that you can look at, look away from, go back to, see a kind of wholeness in it. I did a book about the sculptor Henry Moore, and there's a little bronze of his over there that he uh, gave me. And also, he did that uh, uh, black-faced sheep up there on the right. That's one of Henry's etchings. Uh, but uh, we talked about sculpture a lot, and I learned more about poetry from him 
than I did from talking about poetry with Robert Frost or T.S. Eliot or Dylan Thomas, because it was another art. You were a protege of Robert Frost? Yeah, he, um, well, uh, next to the last time I saw him, I um, introduced him in Ann Arbor at a poetry reading, and he told everybody I brought him up from a pup. Well, he didn't, you know. But I did know him first when I was 16, I met him, and uh, I certainly did admire him. I remember in the eighth grade in Connecticut, uh, I had an eighth grade English teacher who was pretty horrible. And she uh, had us memorize Stopping by the Woods on a snowy evening. And for about six months, I thought he was no good. <laughs> and uh, then I realized he was very good. Why and is that? Why did you think that about that poem? Because uh, uh, I disliked the teacher, and she was not a. She um, was not anybody to present literature at all. That's why I remember her name and her looks and a long time ago. Um, it's uh, 73 years ago or something. But uh, I went to Benning, I went to Benning, I went to Breadloaf when I was 16. I was extremely ambitious. Uh, I wrote a poem when I was 12. When I was 14, I got serious about it. And uh, I published in the magazines that were not school magazines. I don't mean they were good magazines, but the magazines that did poetry. Uh, I think three magazines when I was 16. Uh, and then uh, I heard about Breadloaf from a teacher at Exeter and applied uh, to go there. My parents. It cost a hundred bucks, and my parents were willing to do it. And uh, so I wrote them, and I had a letter back from the assistant saying, condescendingly, of course, how nice of you to want to come, and uh, you are uh, here. We could have you come uh, uh, without charge as one of our waiters, waitresses. And I wrote back in indignation, saying I will come as a contributor or not at all. And uh, arrogant little so-and-so at 16. And they took me. Fantastic. And, uh, I, I met Frost there and, of course, other people. And I, I, did a, I chased women when I was there. I found out later that the leaders had a, had a meeting to decide whether to expel me or not. And they didn't. Thank God. That would not have done me any good with uh, my life as a poet or with my life at home with my parents. But uh, I had a wonderful time. And of course, uh, I, mean, I was the youngest person ever to go there. But I found out later that Truman Capote had been there two years earlier at the age of 17. <laughs> so I beat him. You but, beat uh, him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that stopped them bringing high school age kids after me. But uh, I remember sitting on the, it was a wonderful huge porch all around the inn at that time. And I sat on it, uh, on the porch, with Robert Frost and two women. One was uh, 
uh, the uh, Elizabeth Cunhart who wrote Pat the Bunny. Uh, this is 1945. And uh, with her was her 17-year-old daughter, who was absolutely stunning, and Robert Frost. And Frost talked with us for an hour, and he did not want to leave because he kept looking at the girl. Would you say that he influenced your work greatly? or, or if, And if not, who were your greatest influencers? I don't think he did. I think that uh, his uh, stubbornness and indomitability may have, but not his poetry. When I wrote with thinking of Frost at all, it sounded like Frost. Hmm. And I've written most of my poetry is reverse, not his. And I think uh, partly I I began by writing magical verse, but I um, moved over for most of my life. And I think it, for the greatness of Frost and his ear and his idea of the sound of sense were uh, uh, intriguing, but it's why I couldn't write like him. I had to go elsewhere. One of the things that I've run into when I've spoken with poets before is that they feel that what they've written is finished and they're not quite sure how they feel about a composer coming and putting his... um, interpretation on top of it and you seem to be thrilled for it and so I wonder um, I understand I understand uh, and I'm doubtless I've had such a feeling uh, I've done it don't do anything else to it uh, and music would be the only thing I think of uh, printing it with illustrations of different colors that's just um, too eccentric um, music is sort of natural, but it does. Uh, it, 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 it interprets it in one way. And, uh, and when I read poems silently, but uh, my throat gets tired, I am I'm making, uh, I'm squeezing and expanding uh, without making a noise. But it's... Uh, that can change in poems. Uh, you can, uh, when a poem is, is written, there will be more than one way to say it. And not, not only one way. With music, you get only one way. And, you know, it was beautiful. But uh, that's to say I understand. So what did you, what were your impressions of of the settings last night? Oh, I meant, uh, I loved last night. I loved uh, uh, the, uh, oh, also just, I love the sound of it. <laughs> but I'm not uh, competent to speak in musical terms at all. I'm just speaking of pleasure, not of uh, uh, what Herschel was, uh, was doing, because I don't have the uh, vocabulary or the musical intelligence to uh, answer your question. And that, as a performer, I am always thinking about the shape of vowels, the way that a consonant feels in your mouth, the way that, well, and of course, when you add music, the length and the rhythm, and that's also inherent in poetry as well. And just how beautifully these two things marry. 
together. I know, I know what what you what you mean, but my concentration in writing is not plain speech. My concentration is on the diphthongs it makes. Mm-hmm. It's on the sound of it, and it's say uh, on a metaphorical structure. That at some point, so uh, everything derives from the uh, a same area for a kind of wholeness. Uh, I mean something as uh, uh, minor as minor as uh, there are images which will all be wet or will all be dry. They'll come from different worlds. And reading it, um, I don't think you're liable to say, oh, this is a dry poem, this is a wet poem. But you may feel uh, a, a, a sort of a oneness or shapeliness to the poem that you would not feel otherwise, unless you analyzed it bit by bit. Uh, I'm, I'm aware of that level and of, of avoiding dead metaphor. There's all sorts of things to avoid. But in writing and revising, I will change a line break over and over again and sometimes have it one way one day, the, another way the next day, and the back to the fir- first day. Last night, uh, I talked about line break, uh, um, Herschel and I both did, on the word green. And I don't remember that uh, when, when I was writing that, I went back and forth. But I did think that uh, I could have, uh, your two points where a word has to be especially important, that's the last word in the line and the first word in the line. And obviously, I think the last word uh, is more prominent than the first word, but they're both uh, prominent in, uh, I don't mean so much in paraphrase, I mean in noise, in sound. And I, uh, in that particular poem, I did the line break on the adjective green. And I said last night that uh, it was a long vowel, and if the word there had been not green, but grin, uh, I, I could not have done the line break. I needed, the, I needed to, a word that would hold, and that holds, not only because of the long vowel, but of course of the, the long consonant, green. I mean, the N is not a T. <laughs> and uh, that's the kind of thing I'm thinking about of working with a lot of the time. What I love about what you just said is actually how musical it all sounds. I mean, this is the same thing with music because it is something that is, it, it exists in time, but the musician gets to see what it is on the page, and that makes a great difference to us as performers um, because it creates an impression, and then we want to um, send that impression out into the air when you but i think in a way it is different also because as a reader then the audience gets to consume the actual look of the poem as well yeah 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 the the look um poem on the page is sort of the least important thing mm-hmm. it's an important thing okay if you listen six things about the poem uh as it were maybe the visual would be the six mm-hmm. but let it be there I see. I look at poems again and again. 
uh, magazines. I don't want to read them because of the way they look on the page. Mm. It's uh, the habit of some people, like a long line followed by lines getting shorter down the page or getting longer in a way that seems not expressive at all, perfectly accidental. Art must never seem accidental. So many of the poems in the song cycle from last night spoke about your feelings of great loss uh, over the death of your wife, uh, Miss Jane Kenyon. Um, can you speak a little bit about that experience and those particular poems within the context of those poems? Yeah, uh, I, uh, Jane was, I was 19 years older than Jane and uh, we almost didn't get married because she'd be a widow for so long. Uh, she had a grandmother who lived to be a hundred and four, and uh, we, we got married anyway. And uh, it was a wonderful marriage, superb. And uh, uh, but oh, she had a sixtieth birthday for me when she was early forties, and two years after that. I had half my liver out with cancer, and the doctor gave me a 30% chance of living five years. That was a few years ago, like uh, uh, 20-odd. Uh, and uh, I, we knew, Jane and I knew, that I would die soon, and uh, she attended to me. She uh, got a massage board and massaged every day massaging the cancer out. And I got better, and Jane, at the age of 46, was diagnosed with leukemia, and we had an, a year and a half of being together, pretty much every day, all day. Uh, she had a bone marrow transplant, which worked. But uh, her form of leukemia, uh, when did you do a permanent remission, about 15% of the time, and uh, several months, uh, oh, three months after we came home here from the bone marrow transplant, her leukemia came back and there was nothing to do. She died 11 days later. But of course for a year and a half, we had been living with death right around us all the time. Longer than that, if you'd count me, uh, a part of it. Uh, and uh, we just, uh, if anything, were closer and closer. We were certainly together more. Uh, we, In our marriage, one of the lovely things about it was that we had a kind of double solitude. We both liked to work in separate rooms, but the context of us living together in a double solitude, coming together, going apart, uh, was always there. But now, uh, poetry was not much of it. I worked on, worked on some poems, but it was just love, absolute love, and uh, then absolute loss. And uh, we, we talked about her dying uh, uh, for several days before she she lost the powers of speech and uh, about our life together. We wrote her obituary together. 
we chose the hymns for the funeral, uh, etc. It was all there, and uh, uh, she would think and think and then say something. She'd gone through all this suffering in order to uh, try to live, uh, and now it was worthless. And uh, she said uh, at one point, uh, it was worth it, I would do it again, which was of course a kindness to me. During the treatment, she and I never differed in our opinion. We both wanted uh, uh, the bone marrow transplant and the particular things. But uh, she was telling me as she died, uh, don't regret our, the suffering that I went through in order to try to live. Uh, but uh, when she uh, died, uh, I was of course totally ready for it. And there was, it was a very pretty day and lots and lots of people came to her funeral. And uh, finally my children stayed with me two or three hours uh, or more than that after she died, but then I sent them home and I was alone. And it was about 11 o'clock or so, and I did one thing uh, before I went to bed, which was to drive four miles down the road and see the grave. And I got up at six in the morning, and guess what the first thing I did was? I, I went down and saw the grave again. And at that time, I would go about four times a day, and uh, about a month after she died, I began to write about her. While she was sick, I had written some things about her sickness, uh, and I went back to them. But also I wrote new things. I wrote her a bunch of letters, uh, and the first one was called Letter Without an Address, and, but I did speak to Jane in the letters. I mean, I wasn't confused. I didn't think she was reading them anywhere, but it meant something to me to be able to talk with her. And uh, I worked for uh, several years every morning on the poems about her, about her illness and her dying. And uh, it, working two hours a day on those poems were the only time in the day when my life was good. Uh, I'd work a couple of hours and then there'd be, you know, 22 hours of wretchedness, and then I get back to it. And it, when Jane died or when someone you loved dies, there's nothing to do about it. But it was as if by writing about her, I was doing something about it. I don't mean that was reasonable, but that's how it felt. And uh, actually, uh, for five years after her death, I don't believe I ever wrote a poem about anything else. Uh, and uh, I, uh, uh, the, there was a book all, all about her death called Without. And then the next book uh, was about half about her. It was more distant and uh, I felt her figure sort of 
not next not next to me in bed, but further away, uh, regularly, and it shows in the poems. Uh, I think some of the best ones are actually later ones, but, uh, and even now, I mean, it's twenty-one years since Jane died. Uh, I'm not writing poems; I'm just writing prose. But she turns up in the prose again and again. I did start to date other women rather quickly after she died, and I knew I would. And uh, some people do, and uh, you know, it wasn't. Uh, what did it have to do with her death exactly? In my dream, one thing I'm worried about in my dreams, my night dreams. Sometimes after Jane died, I dreamed that she had left me for another man. And I wonder if I was pursuing other women, uh, partly to get even with her. It didn't seem like that, it, but it seemed as if uh, one expression of my grief, and this will be sound very odd, was my pursuit of other women. Uh, and uh, it, was a, it was a long time before I would have a single girlfriend. I had to have more than one thing going on. Uh, I didn't want anyone to think that um, I was looking for a wife. One more question. And that, that's really mainly, it's more personal, and that's that I have enjoyed your children's books because I read them to my son. And um, I guess I just wanted to know um, why, why, why was that important to you to write children's literature? Uh, the first one I wrote uh, was when Andrew, my son, was four years old, and we lived in Ann Arbor, and that South University house had. Uh, Something like like a wide seat in front of a window, but you could put a tray into it and raise flowers, and uh, it was an important thing to look at. And Andrew said, uh, pointing at the flowers, that he had a wonderful but scary idea. He was going to go to the land store and buy a lion seed and grow a, uh, a lion in the window seat. So I wrote Andrew the Lion Farmer. And I didn't know how to write a children's book, so there were far too many words. The publisher kept getting me to cut it down, but not enough. Story was amusing, uh, and Andrew still likes it, but it never did much. And uh, then uh, I did one more a few years later, which was commissioned, and it was no good. But uh, I had the notion, and probably it was. Uh, uh, as much grandchildren as children, finally. Uh, one day, uh, a dear cousin of mine, long dead, told me a story. Uh, the, the old people went back to before radio, you know, and storytelling was the thing. Before radio or TV, how do you get entertainment? You recite the funny poems to each other, you tell stories. You argue about ideas. Uh, he was here, sitting over there one day, and he said, Oh, do you ever hear the one about the fella? And before he filled up his ox cart with everything the farm had done, 
Then he walked by his ox's head down to Portsmouth Market. And uh, when he, he sells everything out of the cart, then he sells the cart, then he sells the ox and walks home. And uh, I'm my spine chilled. And the next morning, I began a poem called Octroid Man, which came out in the New Yorker. And uh, about a year later, uh, just when it was coming out in the New Yorker, I was here and my daughter, who was probably 20 in college, was lying on the sofa. And uh, I walked past her, and I say that because maybe it was because she was there. She was not a child. But I walked into my study, and without knowing that I was gonna do it, I wrote The Octite Man as a story for children, giving the Oxford of our men a family and children and so on, but very few words. Uh, and uh, I finished it, uh, and uh, my publisher, Juvenile Department, rejected it, and then my agent sent it to the Viking Press, which was his own small publisher then. They had published my first three books, uh, but uh, they took it immediately, and they asked me if Barbara Cooney would do as an illustrator. She lived in New Hampshire at Bain, uh, and uh, I said yes. It won the Caldecott, and I did not know what the Caldecott meant, but they had printed it uh, early in December, probably 20,000 copies, which is a lot, lots of copies. But in January, word got out that it won the Caldecott. They printed 100,000. And every year, I get a good royalty check of American sales, but I also get large royalty checks from Japan, South Korea, and China. And of all, I've written, uh, my name is on more than a hundred books, but uh, uh, there's one textbook long out of print. Uh, but uh, Oxcart Man is probably uh, uh, paid the mortgage more than anything else has. And uh, since then, I've done, I've done 12 altogether. Uh, and not, nothing is what I call the card. Uh, one or two are still in print. One is noticeable royalty check every year, but but Oxcart Man uh, has uh, done it. When I quit being uh, a full professor at the University of Michigan to come here, it was terrifying. My father had had a family job uh, during the Depression. Uh, nobody else had, but uh, uh, Jane's parents were both musicians and freelancers. And uh, for her, it was scary. But for me, I was used to cradle to the grave, you know, retirement and health and everything. And so I felt cowardly about it. And we came here for one year, but after two months, Jane said she would not go back. She would chain herself in the root cellar. And uh, I, re I resigned and uh, with my heart in my throat. And, uh, you know, I, I wrote magazines asking, uh, uh, proposing articles, and the um, editors 
turned turned me down mostly. But a year later, they were writing me in prosaic articles and take long. So for uh, well, probably until Jane got sick, I published uh, about fifty things a year. That is, books. Two years there were four books, and uh, but book reviews, uh, long and short ones, uh, and short stories, children's books, textbooks, uh, and uh, anthologies, collections of other people, so on. Uh, not one kind of thing, but every kind of thing. Most of the writers I know best write one kind of thing, and. Uh, that's fine, and that's their way. But uh, I would work on uh, always with poems first thing in the morning. I attended the gap at five up, and uh, some days I'd work as long as two hours on poems and feel exhausted. And then I would uh, do some little chore like carrying wood to a stove and so on. And then I'd pick up something else. Uh, an ongoing book review or short story. And I, I, when I started something new, I, I was full of energy again. Uh, every time I changed a genre, you know, when there were some long-term things, so I'd do a little work every day. And uh, I had uh, a study in there, a study up there for the summer anyway. And I could go in other chairs. And uh, actually, I own the little house on the road, which is where Kendall lives, and I used to work on that too. But uh, uh, I loved working. I can't tell you how grateful. I can't tell you how grateful I am <laughs> um, that you've spoken with me so frankly, so beautifully. Um, yeah, thank you. I've been. I mean, you've seen me enjoying myself talking about it. Thank you. You're good to talk with. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the podcast and to the wonderful words of Donald Hall. Thanks, of course, to our beloved producer, Matthew Principe, and to all of you listening. Till next time on Sparks and Wiry Cries, I'm your host, Martha Guth. <laughs>